0: This is the fifth instalment of Connors lecture series, Conter vs Corona. As well as a global public health emergency, COVID-19 has exposed the deep economic, political and social crisis. Connor has organised this series of talks to explore these issues in depth. We have lectures on the economy, globalisation, imperialism, class, oppression and how the left should organise to win power. This evening, we're very, very lucky to have Kali Akuno with us to discuss how to build left power in the city, and I will introduce him in just a few moments. But before that, I've been told to do some housekeeping. So, firstly, I will be your facilitator for tonight. My name is Sean. I'm a member of the Content Editorial Board. I am a trade union and tenant and community organiser. For three years, we live in rent and currently with GMB Trade Union. The structure of tonight's meeting will be we'll invite Callie to speak for around 30 minutes. After that, we'll break into smaller groups for 15 minutes using the breakout room function. There, everyone can discuss some of the things that Callie has raised and collectively come up with more questions for them. One question per group will then be presented back to the main group when we ask everyone to come back into the main call. Your microphone must be muted at all times as this reduces the problem of feedback and means everyone can hear better and have a better experience and more importantly we can hear our speaker. Many of you will have heard about people disrupting Zoom meetings, so we've taken a number of precautions to prevent this. We have a security team on hand to eject anyone from the meeting. Geoffrey and has shaved his hair just for this to look a wee bit more like a security man. I think tonight's event, however, is a timely one at this stage of the pandemic as both the UK and Scottish Government begin to publish our plans for easing lockdown. They are also looking at how we can overcome the economic consequences that have resulted through the lockdown measures. I think it's safe to say that there is a widely held belief that there's a danger of lifting lockdown measures too early. The growing pressure to lift these measures from private enterprise and capital has the potential of increasing the risk of infection for hundreds of thousands of people. This rushing pressure has been applied to lift the lockdown measures prematurely is only the latest example of how this pandemic has exposed the flaws and failures of our current system. Many people have spoken at length for the need of new social contract post-lockdown, a change in direction for our economy, a need for a strategy and model which reverses and overcomes exploitation and the extraction of wealth from the poorest to feed the greed of the most wealthy. In the UK, discussions around municipal socialism have took place and have gained speed. Following the relative success of the Preston model in Scotland, Northeastern Council have recently launched their plans for community wealth building, and I know that Glasgow Chase Council are seeing a seat on the city's economic recovery group, with plans to then incorporate structures and forums below that for a whole range of grassroots and community organisations to feed into that discussion. Here tonight, to give us a first hand into how similar projects and movements have succeeded around the world, I have the great pleasure of introducing our speaker tonight, Callie Akuno. Callie is the co-director of Cooperation Jackson, a network of worker cooperatives in Jackson, Mississippi. He's a long-time organizer with the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement and a member of the New African People's Organization. He served as a coordinator for a number of special projects for Jackson, Mississippi's late radical mayor Chokwe Lumumba. He recently co-authored the book Jackson Rising the struggle for economic democracy and black self-determination in Jackson, Mississippi. So without further ado, welcome Callie.
1: What are you? Okay. <laughs> all right. Um let my neighbors go past. Well, first of all, uh thank Contra for in, inviting me. Um for taking up this conversation, uh, I think the times um, really point to the necessity of of this type of strategy. Um, I'll just jump into it. You know, um, there's a lot to cover. Thirty minutes, likely, really not enough. Um, so I'll start um, for all of you, just kind of where some things are uh, now. You know, since we're doing this and having this conversation in the context of COVID-19, start with our own work here in cooperation, Jackson, and try to, you know, present a bit of a picture of some of the things that we see going on uh, uh, throughout the United States. Um, You know, on the municipal level uh, here, the things that that we have seen uh, in our context is a very heightened war between um, the municipal forces, the progressive and radical municipal forces, uh, and the forces of the right which control the state government. Um, the, the state government has used the context of uh, the crisis, and this being the Mississippi state government, uh, to really try to strip uh, the city of Jackson and, and most of the large municipalities in the state of Mississippi of all of their local autonomies. Now, this is not by accident. Um, the, the various autonomies of, of uh, cities being able to make their own kind of uh, public policy decisions regarding public health administration, uh, they speak to potential ways in which the municipalities could potentially be reorganized economically. And that's a critical thing that I think we have to, to recognize and one of the reasons why, at least here, uh, the right is so keen on trying to strip the municipalities uh, uh, of many of their uh, powers. Uh, because what it offers in, in many respects uh, is a new way to do contracting, a new way to do uh, procuring, and a new way of really understanding the public and public goods and what public services are and who has a right and who is entitled to them. Uh, here in the city of uh, uh, Jackson, for instance, you know we've been at uh, the forefront for many years, uh, arguing for uh, an extension of making uh, public resources commons and that they should be more broadly democratically managed and controlled uh, and not just to, to control, say through the central figure of uh, the mayor's office or, or through the city council uh, or through the various departments, uh, but broken up into kind of smaller units uh, wherein uh, communities can determine uh, which of their roads get fixed. We have, and I bring that up. Anybody knows Jackson knows that we have major infrastructure problems. Uh, and our roads are some of uh, the worst you've probably uh, ever seen. Uh, not because of uh, of neglect just so folks say, but under the unique conditions in part of the soil and how it moves and ships here, um, as well as some resource challenges to be honest. but uh, it's a combination of factors. but you know one of the things that you often hear here is uh, we want our roads fixed. you know we want things like that fixed as a, a broad common community demand. Uh, if those resources were decentralized and turned into commons in, rather than some central administration, uh, which is not currently in the control of the, of the municipality controlling, the communities would control it uh, and do the management and upkeep. And I'm just citing this as an example of, that would, would change the economic paradigms of those cities by creating new infrastructure, putting resources directly in the hand of folks uh, in those areas. Uh, I'm just citing that as an example of why they, in this particular context, and I think in many other United States, want to strip the municipalities of, of all of their power. Um, and part of the dynamic, I want everybody to, to understand let me back up just a little bit, is that you know, most of uh, in, the, in the course of the last 70, 80 years, uh, urban areas have become uh, the concentrations of Black and Latino working class people in the United States. And so a lot of the, uh, the power uh, that resides at the ballot box uh, and from that politically in the United States uh, for black and Latino and working class communities of, of all races and nationalities uh, is kind of highly concentrated in municipal uh, uh, governments uh, in municipal areas in the United States. Uh, and with that comes both race and class dynamics that are very much at the forefront of the politics you see playing out uh, uh, on a national level in the United States. Um, as it regards to, to uh, COVID-19, um, it's largely to this point been an urban phenomena, you know, as most of, of the deaths have been concentrated in the New York, New Jersey kind of tri-state area. Uh, it's been largely concentrated amongst essential workers Uh, And to to define what that means here in the United States, at least in those contexts, that's been health workers, sanitation workers, uh, factory workers, and and folks who work uh, primarily in service industries, um, either uh, in care facilities or at uh, restaurants, and particularly grocery stores and convenience stores. Uh, And that pool of labor in the United States uh, is primarily young. Overwhelmingly black and brown, overwhelmingly minimum wage, with the exception of some of the healthcare sectors, um, and is utterly viewed as being disposable. And so, part of the 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 political pretense, both here and and elsewhere, uh, why the right is is so willing and so um, determined here in the United States to reopen soon, uh, is very much premised on on aspects of the race and class dimension of who's infected, uh, who's dying, so much so that you've had, we've, we've heard uh, in Wisconsin, in uh, Oklahoma, uh, a talking point that uh, COVID-19 is not impacting, quote, unquote, regular people um, uh, because, you know, obviously working people, black and brown working people in particular aren't regular, um, that our lives are worthless and they're therefore disposable. Um, So people need to understand, and I'm just trying to give a short summary, understand kind of the foundations of the present. I think to really analyze some of both the possibilities and the threats in the future, but also just to give a grounding of what I said started off with that I think uh, our strategy around concentrating in a municipal uh, uh, level, uh, at least in the context of the left building power in the United States, uh, we think history in this moment has proving us correct. Now there's a lot of challenges that come with that. Um, that that we should get into uh, now. Trying to monitor my time, y'all. There's there's so much going on uh, now, both good and bad. Uh, like trying to really focus in on on what to cover that might be applicable uh, is is a bit of a challenge, even with my little notes here. Um, so. Um, you know, to, to start, um, where I think the left in this present era, and I think this is a kind of a universal feature, uh, since the retrenchment of, you know, the, the 1990s uh, with the collapse of the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union, you know, we found ourselves on a global scale really being in retreat. Um, where m- many of the the kind of state-centered examples that existed, you know, for the towards the latter half of the 20th century, in Latin America, uh, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, uh, most of those have either become uh, parodies <laughs> parodies of themselves, uh, or gone in extreme kind of neoliberal orientations, uh, regardless of whether there's been a, a change in um, administration, uh, you know, which I think China probably would be a, a, a classic example. So even though the Communist Party is still nominally in power there, uh, they've definitely been taking on a lead in kind of a neoliberal orientation and development model for much of the last 40 years and well integrated themselves within uh, that cycle and, and circuit of production on a global scale. So we've been kind of bereft of models. There were some upsurge of things that happened uh, starting in uh, um, uh, the early 2000s, many would point to say Venezuela. uh, uh, It's kind of one of those uh, key examples and we've seen many of the challenges that have occurred there, particularly the last 10 years. Uh, But the point being, we've been somewhat bereft of models and things to follow uh, on a global scale. Uh, many have drawn some inspiration, you know, since the 1990s from uh, the Zapatistas and their model. Uh, more recently, I think many have been following uh, some of the, the the model and example uh, uh, of what's been taking place uh, in uh, Rojava in northern uh, Syria. Uh, but you know, those are two contexts which do, don't mirror what we would experience in in the United States. Uh, or uh, in in Scotland, for instance, uh, in regards to the, the both the level of industrial capacity uh, and the level of kind of straight state concentration in power. so our road has to be one that can maybe draw some experience from that, some lessons from that, but has to be reoriented uh, uh, along different lines of of both food the social basis to be able to move and anchor things, and also what the the route and course is that we have to go through and for us, uh, I would say I think it's fair to say, both in the United States and Scotland, uh, the primary route that we have to go through is through the bourgeois institutions that exist, uh, uh, and, and the, the primary one there being uh, at the ballot box. And what we've tried to to always accentuate in our work here in Jackson is, you know, paying attention to the elections, the election cycle, uh, the state in that regard. Uh, being an instrument uh, of administration and social control in various ways, that we had to impact it to give it as much direction as we possibly can. But we have to build something outside of that. And that is what a a large piece of, uh, to understand kind of our success here in Jackson over the years, is that we gave precedent to building outside of that. To be able to have uh, the community base, the level of support, uh, community knowledge, and draw on, you know, uh, and the capacity really outside of of what the state can do, capacity in the community, to be able to do our own programmatic work, uh, regardless of the limitations of of the of the government, whether those were concrete material limitations, which exist in many uh, states. In, in the United States, Mississippi being one, we don't have, say, the tremendous amount of financial or infrastructure resources as the New York or uh, a California uh, uh, conditions here in some respect mirror much more of what you might find in, uh, from what I understand, like Greece or something to that effect, relative to the kind of the European experience. Um, so we know here that in order to meet many of the community needs we have to we we can't rely on definitely the state government given how it's organized and structured we have to do more self-reliant works and projects but we want to make sure that in our model that that can be complemented with us holding some power at the municipal level so these two things can work off each other and balance each other but the prior, primary thing is organizing the community first and foremost and building that base, and that, uh, for folks to understand, in our case, um, you're talking about a literally a 30-year organizing project uh, that took place, um, you know, in, in stages through various ups and downs uh, before there was any concentrated concerted effort for our forces to get directly involved uh, in municipal politics. And so that organizing is key. And I think folks being being mindful of how much time it takes to build a level of community uh, knowledge, awareness, and understanding is not something that's just going to occur uh, automatically overnight. Um, you know, and there, there has to be various uh, uh, diligent energy paid to building the capacity of what we would call like your own forces, you know, so like the, the forces that existed Uh, that were brought into the projects and work and became members, uh, say, of the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, and then the work that we also did with allied organizations and forces. And those two have to work hand in glove, because you can't always assume uh, uh, as the left uh, that all of our partners are going to agree with us on every single ideological and political point. And so we have to, within these contexts, you know build broad programs of consensus and for us uh we drew very heavily on on gramsci's notion of uh um you know kind of working towards building a a level of consensus you know uh amongst progressive forces in our community around a shared program that we developed uh and within that we kind of had our own positions and aims that we worked towards you know, that kind of our own autonomy and independence within the broad kind of united front. But we were very keen on, um, part of our key role was to try to hold the front, not as a partisan group, but, but to assume a level of leadership for the whole of the coalition, which meant we had to be involved in a wide degree of consultation and a deeper degree of our own understanding and analysis of democratic practice. Uh, and and for us, there were some some key shifts that we had to learn, particularly in the 1990s. Uh, so, and I'll, I'll try to explain in brief what some of those lessons were. So, uh, um, you know, one of the key institutions here uh, that that led to kind of the success that that you would read about in Jackson Rising, or maybe seen in other places. Uh, many people see kind of the election of Chakwe Lumumba as kind of the pinnacle, uh, and then a the continuation on that with his son. I would argue the opposite. Like the, the the central part is us building what we call the People's Assembly, and the first iteration of that started in the the late 1980s, when there uh, there was a, a common feature here in the United States. Unfortunately, there was you know, a young brother who was killed in 1988, uh, openly and blatantly by the police in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, And rather than being uh, in any way accountable, uh, the police chief went on a a campaign against this young man and against his family uh, very publicly. But the backdrop to that was uh, uh, the, the police chief was an open member and a known member of the Ku Klux Klan. Now you might say, how is that possible? Uh, but I want folks to understand that Jackson, Mississippi, uh, even though it's majority black now, has not always been the case uh, in its history. Uh, Jackson didn't become a majority black city until the 1980s. Uh, so relatively late uh, in comparison, say, to a city like Detroit uh, or Cleveland uh, or some of the other major industrial centers you know, in the United States that made their transformation in the 1950s. As a result of the great migration of black, you know, working class people from the Deep South uh, into the industrial kind of heartlands of, of the United States, seeking employment, uh, trying, trying to escape the clutches of white supremacy, uh, etc. So Jackson was late in in that regard, uh, and so he was kind of a holdover of this earlier period from the '60s and '70s uh, when the city had a different composition and the the, the power balance hasn't shifted. So out of uh, a contest to, uh, and it should be noted that, that the 80s was also a heightened period in the United States, particularly in the South, of open uh, uh, white supremacist activity much like it is today. Um, you know, the, there were open uh, members of the Klan who had one uh, elected office. Uh, most folks might remember David Duke, who in our neighbor, Louisiana, uh, was a state legislature uh, in the 1980s uh, and very vocal uh, player uh, on the national scene, uh, and so at that period of time, you know there were like open Klan rallies that we confronted here and challenged in, in, in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. But it was this particular campaign to get him removed from office after the shooting, which led to the construction of of what was then called the the People's Convention, uh, and it was a gradual period of of over three years. The community. Uh, going through that process on a mass level, a high level of mass engagement. Uh, they came to kind of realize, um, <laughs> I'll catch you guys later. Um, this is parenting in the age of, of, uh, uh, the coronavirus. Um, uh, um, so, whereas, so over a course of time, um, there was an awareness, uh, that not only could they be successful, we'd be successful in getting him removed from office, which did eventually happen after two years. But then there was a deeper realization that black working class people now constituted the majority and should therefore have uh, uh, control over the, the city, right? And it's, it's political outcome in its future. And from that, a coalition you know, uh, emerged through the, the uh, People's Convention that organized a slate uh, of candidates that were uh, chosen by consensus uh, to run, uh, this, this slate run, and it won um, three uh, city council seats, but it lost the mayoral seat by a narrow margin, in part because the Black vote was split. Uh, but in that, through that process, and this continued on for another uh, about six or seven years as the People's Convention. In that time, we learned some critical lessons about internal democracy in, in, in the community, uh, coming back to that point. And there, um, the first iteration of the, the convention was that there were often decisions that were made in the group, You know, like in these giant community halls and assembles, assemblies. Uh, and folks would come to a consensus. But since it was kind of a coalition-based model, what would often happen? Particularly at some critical points in time, uh, the representatives of the organizations would then go back and have their what they voted on by consensus undone by uh, the official leadership of the organization because they had made some alliances that the members weren't aware of. So there was a lack of transparency that often occurred, you know, within the coalition. And so its next iteration, was started to to, to uh, uh, regroup. Uh, in the early 2000s, 2001, in uh, particular, uh, the, the second iteration uh, kind of changed the rules and paradigms of that you know, for, all, for what became the People's Assembly. And that model was, was, was not uh, based upon a coalition of organizations, but was very much articulated very clearly that whether you belong to an organization won't be hold, held against anybody, but you're coming to represent yourself as an individual. And with that, we, could, we had to do a lot more dialogue, consulting, checks. But what it led to was that when decisions were made, actually made, you know, through the consensus process, they stuck. They weren't undone. They weren't reversed. So often it took, you know, more time, more deliberation. But what was born out of that was often, you know, rock solid political commitments and engagements and the campaigns and things that went forward, you know, had a profoundly qualitatively a different impact and effect than they did uh, in the 1990s iteration of the same motion. So that was a key learning that, that we have built and adapted upon. Uh, and I say that because, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the concentrated areas of, of what we know to be, I think, from the 19th and 20th uh, centuries experience of how the left built you know we were we were adept at building political parties and we were adept at, at in various cases in building uh trade unions and it was in those two institutions that i think you know uh, in most places of the world where we kind of concentrated our time energy and saw the greatest reflection of ourselves and in our ability to to impact society right and reorganize society uh and in and in some models would have you know um Auxiliary organizations or or mass fronts you know that operated in the community or or had uh ethnic sessions or youth divisions, but you know let's be be real they they were secondary to the party and to the trade unions, and that left gaps i think in our practice and in our model uh, uh particularly in a lot of places say like like in the united states um uh Uh, speaking, you know, what I know best about the black community uh, was, you know, from, from the 1960s on uh, both of those were insufficient, Uh, particularly as the United States economy, you know, shifted and there became far more workers who entered the workforce into non unionized workplaces. You know, we were, we were being kind of left tied with one hand behind our back you know, because we didn't re-pivot and reconcentrate towards organizing uh, workers in the community and started organizing in different places. That orientation of, of where we've come to adapt, we say that we try to organize, you know, where we work, where we live, where we play, and where we pray, and that we have to organize all those bases in our community to be able to have a a, a, a real dynamic program that doesn't leave any sector of the class behind right or or uh, or out or or unexpressed uh, and unaddressed uh, and I think that you know 30-year uh, period we did a decent job you know we could have done a lot better like any place uh, but you know it gave us enough um, energy and I think uh, momentum to be able to not only have the political victories but to launch a vehicle like cooperation jackson to do the work of, start, of trying to start engaging in the productive capacity of organizing the class on its own terms. Um, and that's what we've done. You know, I, I, think, uh, uh, I think it speaks to a, a, a model that we would encourage, you know, others uh, uh, to take up, you know, and I think increasingly more so uh, as capital is finding new ways every day uh, to reorganize our labor. You know, uh, I'm sure in Scotland, um, you know, the, your economy is about as what they call flexible as ours. You know, and how many more workers are now part of the gig economy, or you know, uh, um, uh, working for algorithms like Uber and and uh, you know, things of uh, uh, of that nature. Um, and uh, if we uh, don't be innovative and catch up in kind of the arms race in the class struggle of how we organize ourselves. Uh, we're going to be left further behind, and and I'll end on on you know uh, a kind of a challenging note um, relative to this time. Um, you know the the right you know has a tendency to uh, very effectively the last what 40 50 years to exploit crisis to the hilt. Right. Uh, What's that? Leave, you know, uh, leave no crisis behind. Right. They they use and exploit uh, every natural catastrophe, political catastrophe you can think of uh, to advance uh, major agenda policies. Um, This one is no exception, you know, from what I'm seeing, definitely in the United States, but also throughout the world. You know, just what two days ago, Donald Trump, by executive order, basically eliminated, you know, uh, the whole regulatory protection regime that had been built up in the United States over the past 70, you know, 80 years. So for us, you know, uh, any company that wants to uh, pollute the water to do more fracking or to do more drilling has a complete go ahead. You know they they can relax all of the the emissions around, you know uh, uh the whatever they're producing. You know you can just spew to whatever limit if it's going to be any hindrance to your your factory your your workplace getting in operation. Um, and this this deregulation has been a key piece that they've been pushing now for decades. You know uh, very openly very obviously. Uh, and let alone the, the the other piece around how this is going to challenge working conditions, putting millions of workers live at, at you know, uh, a threat because it's just going to loosen, if not eliminate the work uh, safety hazards, you know, and leave that strictly up to uh, the companies to regulate. We have to recognize in this moment, and I think take this moment serious, uh, much more serious than I've seen, you know, some of our uh, uh, trade union and other allies, you know, kind of take on, at least in the U.S. context um we are not going back to the way things were after COVID-19 you know capital is learning learning quickly uh and adjusting uh and how work will be organized if they are left to decide uh on their own will be profoundly different some of the things that we can anticipate and i think you know was it the twitter kind of took the lead and saying you know, many people kind of initially thought this was positive, at least in some of the circles that I was monitoring, you know, the CEO of Twitter said uh, uh, all of Twitter's uh, employees would now be able to work from home permanently. And many people say, oh man, this is great. You know, it's like, wait a minute, pause, pause on that. Because what that means is you'll be working more. You'll be working with, with more flexible rules and regulations, right? You know, just more as contract workers, because they'll shift to that which means you won't have union protections, you won't have, you know, a U.S. context uh, uh, since healthcare in the United States, you know, uh, for folks who may not know or, you know, assuming the international audience, you know, healthcare in the United States for for most is attached to your employment because we don't have a national health uh, service here. So that means more people will be, you know, off the the, the healthcare road without any health coverage at all. Uh, it means we'll, folks will be working for less because, you know, we now have 40 plus uh, million uh, uh, newly unemployed uh, workers in the United States, millions of whom will be desperate and will, will, will start to work for almost any wage, you know, as uh, their bills still have to be paid because other adjustments to the economy haven't been made, you know, rent, utilities, those things have not been, uh, or they were temporarily suspended in many places, but coming back online almost everywhere in the United States on June 1st. Um, and so, you know, we know the evictions rates is, is going to, to, to go up uh, uh, astronomically here in the United States. Um, so there's gonna be a profound reorganization in the next couple of years. We need to be very keen on that. Uh, and we have to start working, our organizing and struggling on that basis. The good piece that I, we've seen, I think the, the, the most positive development uh, i 've seen and can speak to here in the United States is that uh mutual aid uh has just grown exponentially in the United States you know very spontaneous i mean there are mutual aid services uh, and a level of political maturity that's that have occurred in the last couple of months that I think has been astounding uh and that's also occurred in the United States you know with the with the number of uh, wildcat strikes and, and autonomous actions that have happened in workplaces you know big and small uh, since March um, you know often outside of the trade union uh, leadership and structures in 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 most cases um, so these have been uh, positive developments I think the critical piece is how do we bring both this political fight back with and really merge that? with the mutual aid work so that they mutually reinforce each other to be able to have the most profound political impact in our organizing uh, to really uh, uh, bring forth uh, uh, and, and really um, reorganize this society and bring about some critical structural reform that's going to be needed. Um, you know, So it's not all doom and gloom uh, uh, in any uh, respect, I think, here in the United States. Uh, but there are some profound challenges, you know. And we're bringing it back home to to end out where that type of, of marriage, if you will, will I think uh, of a necessity come together first and foremost will be in the municipal areas. And I think we could we could create a model wherein uh, uh, here in the United States, and uh, this is something that we're advocating, you know, is that we have to. Uh, Do a level of coordination in the United States where the mutual aid networks uh, begin to uh, form our own value and supply chains that we're connecting with each other, you know, and having uh, uh, relations from uh, uh, city to city, and then marry that with the best elements of of uh, progressive administration that either exist or over the course of the next couple of years, our movement it's very strategic in putting in place, utilizing this model of organizing ourselves through these mutual aid networks to have assemblies and other new democratic forms of power and expression come together. And I think that could be married and has to be married with the trade unions repivoting themselves and getting on board and lending their expertise and resources to the cause, but then all the other institutions of the solidarity economy that have emerging in the United States to come together and first execute this on the municipal level, And then there's a critical piece of making sure this doesn't just stay in the municipalities, given who's concentrated there, but there's a concerted effort that we have to make to fight against the right in the United States uh, in rural areas and in small uh, 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 kind of suburban and exurban areas where there are concentration, particularly of kind of uh, white petty bourgeois forces who, if they are not reached by us, will swing towards the fascists. So we have a concerted political project and program that we have to develop be clear about and execute I think here in the United States that starts with the municipal level organizing but extends outward I think to, to scale up towards a national fight back and transformation uh, uh, program so uh, I'll in there I'll try to, I tried to merge and bring a lot of things together uh, I went through about half of uh, uh, my notes. Uh, so hopefully that was 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 helpful. To go through the rest would take about another hour. I'm seeing uh, 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 literally, uh, so I'll stop there so we can open up for the breakout rooms and the questions.
0: As a as a reaction to COVID, when COVID ends, when we go back to normalcy, uh, will all of that energy, those mutual aid groups, sort of dissipate? And how do we can successfully retain that energy? Uh, you mentioned at the beginning that our primary route is through the bourgeoisie institutions like voting, but at the end, uh, you ended on a note of, actually, we need to be marrying these mutual aid groups with political to, intent in the cities to build this sort of uh, ecosystem of solidarity economies. Um, and so that, that there's that two-part question. How do we retain that energy that COVID has brought to working-class people organizing? And then when we do, do we plug it into
1: bourgeoisie institutions or rather creating our own? Yeah, I think this is, if I understood and heard all the question, I think this is a key question. You know, um, I, I can tell you what what we are doing and trying to um, produce some specific works to address this question. And what we're looking at is the, the experience in uh, Argentina uh, uh, in the 2000s, early 2000s, and how, um, you know, I think for about a four or five year period. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of uh, work in those reconversions to kind of build uh, some new lines of, of value chains and supply chains. Um, but eventually, that petered out. Uh, and we've seen, you know, from what I know, uh, a similar example with like uh, some of the trekgate stuff. Uh, uh, in Venezuela, you know, when 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 times and areas are tough, there's a there's a great deal of uh, uh, participation in it. When things kind of get back to normal, uh, participation kind of peters out. Uh, I know in Argentina, one of the reasons why a lot of that co-op effort failed uh, was that um, they got into many legal battles as things kind of returned to normal as to whose property it was, et cetera. Uh, but I think even more important than that, uh, they were severely undercapitalized. They, they couldn't get access to loans and resources that they need to kind of like purchase new equipment, uh, buy supplies, uh, uh, et cetera. Um, you know, and that was on purpose to starve that model uh, and, and to kill it. Uh, and so we could expect, I think, much the same wherever we are, uh, under the the normal rules and operations of of kind of the capitalist logic of kind of stunting and blunting and destroying alternatives. Um, So I don't think there necessarily is a safeguard, but the key thing that we're trying to draw upon that and why we're saying that there there has to be kind of uh, this coming together of forces uh, because the mutual aid for the most part the stuff that we we engage in uh, is more about distributing you know what's what's at hand um, and less about the product like producing new things because we don't most of us don't own factories and you know we, we don't have that um, so it's a redistributed distribution of what already exists we got to change that dynamic that if this is going to survive, with democratic distribution based upon need, you know, to the greatest extent possible we can from the community, but that has to be married with the productive capacity of what the mutual aid societies can then transition to do. So for us from the beginning, you know, one of the things that, that folks should note um, I think while our organization has been able to make this pivotal shift that we've been able uh, to make as cooperation Jackson, we are. Uh, we were birthed from Hurricane Katrina. That's a critical thing to note. Like a key point of the uh, Cooperation Jackson program was birthed from Hurricane Katrina. So our our collective learnings from the last major catastrophe. And so for us, that's why we've always made it a a very clear political focus, even though it, it doesn't make the most economic sense in the capitalist market, but why we've prioritized trying to build food sovereignty in our community. In anticipation of moments like this, and so that we couldn't be starved into submission, which is some, some things that lessons and things that we've seen done in the South historically, but also saw to a, to a lesser degree happen in Hurricane Katrina. So we did a little bit of prep that put us in a more advantageous position than I think many. We had food. We already had stuff that we could distribute to ourselves, even with everything shut down. We already had that, but that was a learning from the last you know thing that we all collectively went through but it's that level of how do we shift, like, you know, uh, like if our co-ops aren't just uh, trying to be succinct with it. So we need to make sure that in the future, the one thing that we would encourage is that folks try to, to focus on co-ops that are producer oriented, not just distribution oriented. So, if you think about like a grocery store or something like that, that's more distribution. It's not necessarily us producing the things that go into the grocery store. If we do, it's just like a small scale or relies on maybe some local small scale production. But I think we have to start thinking to a greater degree to scale. And the municipal level, what I was saying to come back to that, not depart from that, the municipal level helps with that. So for instance, you know, uh, uh, in many places, I like can at least say in the deep South, uh, the urban areas still have a lot of land available. So like in Jackson, there's a ton of vacant properties. That's how we built our community land trust by, by buying and occupying a number of vacant properties. That same type of logic, we would encourage other folks to kind of take up and this is where if you have you know uh, if our movements are strong enough to put left forces of our uh, com- that come from our movements in office who have a political program that is very much clear on we're going to take all of that vacant land and turn it into a commons for public use that could then be used for various productive capacities if they are there and in place to be able to do that it's less of a fight and there's more resources that you can already bring to the table the primary thing is us organizing ourselves. I, I'm not taking away from that, but it, it makes it easier uh, in certain cases if we are set up to have other supporting institutions with resources support us, even for a limited amount of time, or like c- constructing commons is something that could be a more permanent feature of how our cities are reorganized. So, these are the things that I would say that, that we are trying to bring forth as lessons. So how does not make this a temporary fix, but how to make it something that is a part of the transformative landscape that we're building going forward? That's what I would offer in short. There's other stuff I would say, but but you know, just in the interest of time, that's I hope that's a clear enough example of of kind of uh, 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 how I think we can we can deal with some of this.
0: Spot on. I think that was quite good, quite comprehensive, and an interesting point about how who's the kind of, this phase came out of the last disaster, Hurricane Katrina, how the reaction and lessons learned. So I'm gonna take three questions this time, one after another, and then Callie, if you could respond to the three at the same time. So first up, we've got Sophia, then I'll take Midwestern, and then Sarah Bennett. So Sophia, if you want to unmute yourself. Hey. (laughs) Uh, So in our our group, group, um, we we were um, sort of, very much interested in this idea that we have to build power outside of the institutions. Yeah, this kind of community and stuff. So our question is, how do we organize, how do we infuse, how do we bring people together? And as an example, um, uh, we, we thought about if we wanted to do a certain workers' scope, On a project, how how do you convince people to do that? You know, how do 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 they? You make them uh, think about it as something possible in in their heads rather than impossible, and a lot of other examples of this type. But that's uh, our question. Okay. Excellent. So we have Midwestern next.
1: How did you? All right. My name is Joe. By the way, Joe Merton. But anyway, um, our question is: How do you manage to uh, work in an existing uh, power structure, meaning uh, government, uh, legal, um, economic, um, and, and, and the uh, broader community—the uh, community that you're working in—to uh, best effect uh, uh, positive change? Thank you. So, next question. I take this.
0: See that. Raymond, is that you?
2: Hi, it's Raymond here. Uh, look, we had uh, an interesting discussion where we had experiences from someone who had been elected a councillor in the early 1980s without any kind of mass base. And we spoke about, in the late 80s, how we had an explosion of community organisation around the anti tax movement, but nothing in the institutions and nothing in the labour movement. And the question we kind of arrived at was in the covid uh, pandemic, we're facing huge job cuts, you can see at Rolls-Royce, we're seeing in Edinburgh, everyone in our groups from Edinburgh, and the local bus services are starting to get cut. And we're going to face a number of attacks in the community as well. And the question we, 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 we arrived at was around how in Jackson, where you got people together from the local labour movement and the local communities working together in the people's assemblies, how you managed Build unity across the labour movement and the the community group, bearing in mind that a lot of people from the labour movement come as delegates with viewpoints arrived at collectively in their own organisation. How have we able to build an effective kind of united front across the community and the labour movement? Thank you.
1: (laughs) That, Callie, all good? All good. I like y'all don't come with easy questions. Uh, uh, where to start? Uh, let me start with the most challenging one, um, as I see it anyway. Um, there's some parts of our experience which are not easily replicable. Let me, let me make that clear. Uh, uh, this goes, I think, particularly to the last question. So um, trade unions in Mississippi are fundamentally, with the exception of maybe two, pretty powerless. Um, Mississippi is a right-to-work state, meaning you have the right to work for less and and the right to work without representation. It's the the opposite of what that law means on the internet, that phrase means on an international level. And, you know, we call it the Taft-Hartley regime. You know, that is the the rule of of the day here. Um, And to just be blunt, um, uh, that leaves historically the trade unions here, if they wanna move something, they've always had to rely on the support of civic organizations and community organizations much higher than they've had to, say, in New York or Chicago or Detroit, right? There, they were able uh, to be so strong that they often moved the community with them. So it was the other way around. Here, the the politics have been driven by community forces, historically either by like civic organizations like the NAACP, or black black churches and then the unions kind of come along with that. So it's the inverted sense of where folks at and because um they don't have an over exaggerated sense of their power it's been much easier to form alliances and 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 and, and, you know to to come to the community and expect you know uh uh, to see everybody on an equal level playing field and where they can't just play the, the numbers game with folks here like they do in other places I've lived. So that, that's just, you know, just to recognize that some of the things that how we were able to do that is is a unique uh, product of the circumstances of our environment. In other places, you know, that I've lived and worked, the only other way that I can say that, honestly, in sometimes dealing with unions was to, to make sure that I brought more people to the party than they did. Right, and then we would be taken seriously. Then they would negotiate in honesty and fairness, you know, it's because we had strength and we had something that we brought to the table. And I'm not knocking that, you know, because, you know, the, the part of the power in our society is numbers games, right? How many people can you get to vote? How many people can you get to do that? So I'm not saying it's knocking it for itself, but I think what it has led to sometimes is not seeing the value of other, other forces in the class and in the community that can be related to, and that goes to I think the the, the question that that um, uh, Sophia uh, kind of uh, raised. You know, um, two things again about the uniqueness of our situation. This is just Jackson. The uniqueness of the situation historically. Um, unemployment here since forever. You know, last 40 years has been chronic. Um, so go back when I when I was mentioning about Jackson becoming majority black relatively late. Um, you know, Jackson is a mid-sized town. You know, uh, uh, in a southern rural state, um, and so you know uh, the the industries that were historically built here are Pretty much concentrated on taking surplus agricultural product and moving it someplace else. So, trucking, transportation, freezing—like those are the major kind of industrial sectors that are here. Um, you know, and that's bringing product in, you know, from the surrounding area, which is all farmland. You know, to be packaged and processed and then moved on. Uh, and then the other, you know, the largest employer in town by far in Jackson is the government of one form or another, either be it state government, county government, municipal government, federal government, uh, The you know, the, the teachers, et cetera, its government is, is by far and away the largest employer. Um, but because there wasn't much of an industrial base here, um, that meant the last wave of black folks who left the countryside you know, uh, uh, because that was a process for for us, you know, leaving the the old plantation economy and the sharecropping economy. The last wave that moved into the city, basically, uh, they didn't go to Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles, St. Louis in the 70s and 80s, because the jobs had dried up there. So there was very other little place to go than what was next to them. Uh, But that meant that when folks got here, there's a tremendous degree of, of, of permanent unemployment built in. So there was already uh, um, high degrees of self-organization and kind of communal care that people were engaged in solidarity work and have been for generations. They just didn't necessarily always call it a co-op. And sometimes you couldn't call it a co-op because what people do, were practicing solidarity in kin units, basically. You know, I, 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 uh, and you, if you go to Jackson, like if I could show you, I'm outside in my front yard, you know, um, you know, the, the, on this little block that I'm on, uh, and uh, myself included, there's like 12 houses on just this side of the street. Uh, Seven of those 12 houses all have gardens in the back. So people feeding themselves is just a normal feature. Of of like to a certain degree a normal feature of life and how you survive here, so what that what that leads is like because of the unemployment and because of the kind of do for self attitude that folks have basically really just brought from the countryside, it makes certain kind of encouraging folks to take up cooperative work a little bit easier than it would when when uh, uh, I lived you know I lived in Oakland for a good number of years and I was a public high school teacher there. And I tried to do co-ops there. It was a much harder challenge organizing a co-op in Oakland, California, than it is than it has been in Jackson. Um, and I think that's just a condition of um, where the resource is going to come, the tradition of employment versus self-employment and all that comes with that and responsibility. Uh, but I think the, the the critical piece is now, you know, I'm sure all over the world now, there are millions of people Uh, who are unemployed and that's where like the, the, you know, unemployed councils I was talking about, that first basic level of organizing, building relationships, building an organization, finding out what capacity people have, finding out what skills people have, interests, needs, and desires, putting that together in a systemic way will enable us to do both the mutual aid and the co-op productive work that I'm talking about. So there, I think in the short term, there'll be a great more, and I'm talking short term within one or two years, everywhere there will be a high degree of folks open to experimenting at the very least and I, I think the future will be dictated by how successful we are able uh, 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 to do that uh, you know train people and skill people up in how to, to to do co-ops and things like it will will determine a lot of the left's capacity and outcome in, in the future to, to move folks in that direction and then then I'm, I'm trying to answer your the the other question within in frame with within that. I mean, um, the one thing I'm I'm uh, hopefully bringing on is how much we have intentionally learned from s- summarizing our own failures, you know, and, and our own hard knock lessons to build upon. If there's anything that I think, you know, I always try to convey is you know, things we did in the past got us to this point. We learned from that, what the mistakes were from that, then tried to move on to the, to the next point, but doing collective summation is very key to that. So anything about, you know, uh, how to do a level of empowerment in the, in the community, um, Takes that relationship and that constant level of, of organizing, but that level of reflecting and building off of it, I would say is is once once we kind of figured out how to really do that in the 90s, is we saw a qualitative leap, and I think in our work ever since. Um, uh, and that's what I would impart for anybody trying to figure out on a municipal level, you know, uh, how do you take up the, the experiences, whether they were the most abject failures, like what do you learn from that? you know, and, and, and how do you build on it? Like, you know, I don't think from the left, I think we got to definitely be on a not afraid to fail, you know, because if, if we're failing at something, it means we're actually doing something and not just talking about it, you know, uh, but how we learn from that, I think is critical. The, is the, the critical piece that we, 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 where we are right now. Got
0: two more questions. I'm going to have to stop it there. Um, so next up, Mahdi, and then we'll go to Jenny. Madi. hello. Um, yeah. So our question, uh, we kind of were discussing and sort of said, um, often communities are already organised um, and they have ready leaders. And but these readers, leaders are quite protective of their communities, uh, quite rightfully so in some cases, and quite sometimes very hard to. Um, get into them, slash, they're, you know, uh, basically uh, they're very suspicious of people getting involved from outside the communities. So, how does a larger left movement sort of gain the credibility to build these uh, alliances that are going to be, you know, uh, that are considered going to be needed uh, to sort of fight what's coming? <laughs> I uh, Jenny, thanks. Hi, thanks, Sean. Um, Callie, you were actually in, our discussion, so you've heard most of this already, so I won't I won't take too long. Um, we were interested in some of the, the practicalities of consensus building. I think a lot of us have been involved in left-wing organisations before and have had that experience that you talked about when you try to build a consensus with different organisations. They come to a meeting, they agree it, they go back to their own organisation and then it all uh, goes to shit essentially, and um, so how did you, when you did that sort of like everybody comes to this as an individual, how did you practically do that on a level of how did you consult people and how did your coalition partners deal with that sort of um, radical democratization of the coalition?
1: So Maddie and Jenny, this is why it took 30 years. <laughs> uh, uh, in short um because um folks are rightly distrustful you know I would say in a lot of our communities because there's a lot of hustles out there there's a lot of hustlers out there um um you know that that is a real dynamic um and what we found you know there, there's some parts of Jackson that are you know like Uh, deeply organized on a community level. You know, there's two communities, Georgetown uh, um, uh, and Battlefield, uh, Battlefield Park area, Battlefield, we call it. Um, I would say as some of the strongest community organizations, probably in the world, um, and, you know, uh, like I still to this day have to kind of like get permission to go into like those those hoods, you know, um, um, you know, and they, and both of them have had are, are products in part of long term kind of environmental fights against environmental racism. They're close to uh, a couple of like toxic sites, and so they they have a history of organizations kind of parachuting in, you know, offering some resources, making deals behind their backs, and and. You know, trying to think what's best for them without kind of consulting the people or moving. So you know, uh, coming in and, and uh, working with them still to this day can be contentious. You know, and you and we, we, you're being challenged uh, uh, and tested all the time as to, you know, who's making this decision, where does the power really lie? You know, um, um, and oftentimes you know we we'll, we'll see something to come up and we'll do a consultation with folks and we know just from knowing them well that, you know, they're, they'll hold out from, from sending replies back or answers <laughs> back to see like who else has moved, who else has responded, you know, uh, are y'all just doing this on your own or is this a real broad uh, alliance or initiative? You know, so there's always a test. And I think to a certain extent, you know, that there's, that's right. But, um, you know, it it the reason. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that joke, It's taking time to just win people's trust, and that is something that it in, in our community, and I would wager in most of yours. Like, there's a very deeply instilled. What kind of have you done for me lately? Kind of orientation, and because we live in capitalist societies, where competition even amongst us is, you know, a normal feature, particularly around the the. Uh, who gets what and what resources are available and how those are distributed, you know, be it from a municipal government and what contracts or what's doled out to who. Or in the U.S. we have this huge, you know, nonprofit complex thing that exists. So, you know, which organization is given which grant and on why and on, on whose personal relationship and resources. There are constant things that always challenge the the trust that people have with each other that we kind of have to be be mindful of. And I think what, when we have been at our best and there've been challenges, uh, uh, particularly here. So one of the things, this is a, a critical thing. Um, you know, Jackson has become, because of the little success here, Jackson in some resp- uh, respects has become like a little Petri dish, uh, particularly for the, the foundations uh, who, you know, totally ignored this place for 50 years Um, you know, and then soon after we won the mayoral election, you know, there's been a flood of money into the, into the community. Um, and then they've been very much trying to pick and choose, you know, who they want to give, uh, uh, money to. And so we've had some struggles over that over the course of the years that I think we've, we've come back to our senses through some struggle to be like, you know, uh, if they're going to offer any money, they need to talk to everybody, or we are going to just form a solid block and say, this is how this is going to be determined. This is what these resources need to be used for. Uh, And and not for whatever new program or new idea that you've been sold on, but this is what what we've determined collectively needs to happen. And these are the folks who's best uh, uh, situated to do that. You know, so I can tell you like for, at times we've been like the darling of some foundations and folks have offered money for programs that we're not even doing. We're like, well, okay, that would be helpful, but only if we could do X, Y, and Z. We said, well, we want you to do this. Well, that, we're not doing that. So thank you, but no, thank you. You know, but we got into a point where we're building some trust with folks. So folks like they wanted to do like a, a major kind of art project and some kind of thing that we had no interest in, but they were like, uh, offering a couple of million dollars to do it. And and so that we knew there was another organization, a, kind of a sister allied organization that, has been trying to do that type of work but because of the politics of some of their leadership this foundation have been trying to do everything but go you know to, instead of dealing with them but to go around them right and so we just formed a block and said this is who's doing this work in this community and we've said that if if you want you know to give your money uh, to do X Y and z they're already doing that work have been doing that work can use the resources that's what the money should go to and you know we we forced them into a corner to basically you know, uh, if you want to get a, a little foothold in Jackson for your own promotional purposes, this is how it's going to go down. But you know, I think that's a small sense of like how solidarity, you know, needs to be built. But like what the levels of trust are, uh, and so for us, that was an a, a, a effort to a certain extent of very consciously and intentionally healing some relationships. But, but we could only demonstrate in practice by when they called us to make sure every time they tried to call us to go around this other organization, the other organization was on the phone, right? And, and, and despite whatever mess up, we don't want to talk to them. Like, it's not, a, that's not your choice. You know, I live here and I have to live here and have to have a relationship here. So you either don't want to talk to me uh, uh, because you, I'm not going to let you ruin the relationships I have in my community. So you make a choice. Either they, you know, you accept them or we all just say, move on with you. And eventually they had to, you know, uh, uh, kind of comply with that but i think it's how we practice solidarity is the is the key thing that that ultimately will will break those those barriers down you know but we have to be real it's not like you know all the the interests in our communities always align they do not you know like there's still very kind of real uh to put it in stark terms there's still very real struggles here amongst you know, like black working class kind of interests and black professional petty bourgeois interests that, that run into conflict kind of like all the time. And the, and the resource question is where that shows up again and again and again and why you constantly have to kind of reinforce certain practices, you know, uh, that show up. And so the answer to your question around like, uh, um, uh, Jenny, around how to have, have some folks taken that, trust me, it wasn't too kindly at different points Around people, uh, uh, you know, kind of losing their power or or grip over their flock, or or their members. Um, but I think it wind up. See, the the thing here was again the learning experience, and what we had, I think, when we made that shift that made it e- uh, easier was in 1997, in particular. There was a series of ugly, real ugly incidents where the group made some clear decisions and then three three churches and one of the, the big organizations in town, their leadership went and reversed that. And they kind of did it publicly. That alienated their members from them because they were there figuring they had power to to, 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 to the, and the authority because they were sent there to be the representatives, et cetera. How that played out, I think was a great education for those members. And then from the community after that, you know, like, well I'm speaking for me, you know, not in, in some deep new individualistic way, but like, I think that this is the best course, whether my pastor agrees with it or not. And I'm going to work for that. That was a big lesson If we, and if we hadn't had that failure, I think in that big kind of a fallout in 97 in particular, it probably would have just kept going in the way that it was, and there really wasn't, wouldn't have been much of an incentive for it to change or to shift in any fundamental way. But how that broke out, and 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 what the consequence of that was, so folks, uh, let me state what that was: the coalition broke over the the uh, who the uh, the the endorsement of what that new slate was that I talked about, right, and the The, the kind of the bigger wannabe mega churches in town wanted to go with a less radical candidate. And so they went with him, and he wind up um, splitting he wind up winning the election. He became the first black mayor, but it was at the cost and the expense of the the larger people's convention having to be silent about their opposition. So he won because folks didn't want to divide the black community again, as happened four years earlier, but it left a real salty taste in the community's mouth because folks knew and understood it. If we hadn't gone through that and then taken a couple of years, you know, to, to come back and heal lessons, heal relationships, the People's Assembly would have never taken off and had the legitimacy then at that point to say this is how it should run on an individual basis so folks are free to operate it and had that, you know, uh, 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 you know vote their own conscience and then follow that up and you know it's like it don't take away from you being a member of that church or whatever the situation is but we're asking you that if you agree to something you see to see for to carry it out and can people buy into that so far they're stuck but it's, it hasn't been without challenges trust me you know there's still been efforts to you know just follow what we say or if you're part of this church or that still goes on it still happens uh, but you know the the living memory of that has been passed on, and the lessons since then have been passed on. You know, so again, it's building on something that happened to us concrete that then took years of of re of healing, rebuilding. You know, patient, diligent work to to make a real cure lesson and gain from. That was brilliant.
0: Thank you very much, Callie. We're going to have to call it a night. A big round of applause for Callie once more. big thank you, absolutely loved it. I took a great deal from it. And from the message I'm getting on my phone, I think a whole lot of people did. It served as a great discussion point for a lot of discussions we're having in Scotland. I'm sure it'll, it'll go forward in the next weeks and coming months. Um, if there's any further questions, I, I'm hoping if they email the quarter Board, the quarter Editorial Board could email it to Callie, hopefully. And if there's any time, you could try and answer some of those by email if he's not doing bad. Um, you can also buy Callie's book. We'll send out a link to buy Callie's book, Jackson Rising, direct from the publisher, but on Amazon and others, if you wish. Um, but we'll send out that link alongside the link of the recording. Um, next week's lecture is Jodie Dean, an activist and author. She's a professor at Hobart and William Smith College. She's the author of 12 books, including Democracy and Other Neoliberal Fantasies, The Communist Rising, Crowds and party, she'll be discussing identity politics in the left, which is the topic of a new book, and I will not be chairing that one. Um, But thank you very much. There is one more thing I've been reminded to say, and I forgot what it is. Is So, yes, please join the mailing list for Connor. Like and subscribe on Facebook and Twitter. We've got a podcast you can listen to on Spotify. We've got an email directly from us with a roundup a link for um, Callie's book, a link to watch the discussion again. Thank you for joining us, and I'll see everyone next week. Thank you. And that's us. James. Take care, everybody. You too, mate. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cheers.